0: I am
1: so excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Jennifer Doyle, a professor at UC Riverside, author of Campus Sex, Campus Security, infrequent blogger at the Sports Spectacle, infrequent but powerful Twitter presence at From a Left Wing, and um, a conspirator and collaborator of mine and a lot of us. And really um, an important critical voice in any discussion about sexual assault in sport and beyond. We're going to talk about that. So welcome again to the show, Jen. Thank you for having me on. I want to ask, so I could repeat this sentence and probably have, so I can push the forward button or the reverse button in history and I'd be saying the same thing, which is recently there have been a scourge, a spate of allegations and, if we want to even use that word, about sexual assault, sexual harassment, a spectrum of gendered violence within sport. And I want to ask you then, how do we continue to have this conversation in a way that's not just repetitive and frustrating? How do we not find ourselves... Broken recording all the time.
2: Yeah, there's a couple challenges to that. You know, one is that as long as we have this corrupt patriarchal architecture that's holding our love for the game, you know, that attachment to the game is going to be violated by it over and over and over again. And then within that culture, there's this strange thing that happens where there's like a discourse. That on the one hand, you know, um, you know, it's obviously like outraged by sexual abuse and harassment, um, titillated by sex scandals. We can only, you know, look to politics, right, to see the disorienting way in which we have a super abundance of sex scandals that never seem to matter or change anything, right? Um, And I'd I'd say it's even kind of accelerated and condensed around our political culture, um, as evidenced by the last president. (laughs) So, you know, like sports isn't like a space apart from. Uh, our political culture, socio-political moment on that front. And so sex and power, the story of the relationship between sex and power kind of, um, it's like baked in to, again, I'm going to use that word architecture to talk about like the infrastructure of the institutions that hold us in relation to each other. And then we have on, you know, this kind of scandal economy, but we also have this discourse, which makes it, which is like, This is a rape-free environment. There's no tolerance for sexual harassment, right? Zero, zero, zero tolerance for sexual harassment and abuse. And uh, you know, and there's like you know, every time we hear this, is like a ginormous eye roll, you know, from like the world's population, (laughs) you know, because it, you know, because of course, like there is an enormous tolerance for um, sexism, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. We can all we can point to what's happening at Netflix, right, as an example. Every time I hear, oh, this is about David Chappelle, every time I hear people talking about, he made some jokes about transgender people and that's like the issue. And I'm like, no, the issue is that trans women are being murdered. Um, and he sided with the discourse that supports tra- anti-trans violence, right? So I was like, this is not this simple matter of making a joke. So there are all kinds of ways in which sexual violence actually gets bit, you know woven into the fabric of our everyday lives. And then sports, um, I'm gonna try to, I could do a discourse for an hour, so I'm gonna like try to slow myself <laughs> down for a second. But like in sports, what we have is a deeply high, hierarchical structure that um, manages your access to pleasure and to the game and also is you know holds out the kind of carrot of enormous success, whether that be representing your country on a national team or having um, corporate endorsements, becoming a celebrity, it's a really asymmetrical power system. And like the church, like university structures, like the military, these kinds of deeply hierarchical structures are ones in which harassment flourishes. Harassment loves that dynamic. Um, It's a really great ecosystem for harassment. Mm -hmm. Fertile soil. Yeah, and it's also (laughs) a really difficult one for um, practicing accountability. So, you know, with the feminist organizations that have helped to carve out accountability processes around violations of trust, and um, Insight is a a really important organization that's crafted manuals, you know, for how to Mm -hmm. actually establish uh, accountability processes in your organizations. Those guidelines begin with, these processes are uh, almost impossible, if not impossible, to stage within a hierarchical structure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, in such a gender segregated space, so there's really very few spaces in the world that are as segregated along lines of gender and a binary concept of of gender as sport. And it's just it's important to point out that one of the things you're saying about whether it's Dave Chappelle or whatever organization we're going to talk about is that it's a continuum of misogyny. Yeah, People say, oh, it's just a joke, or oh, it's just that, and you're pointing towards this really important fact, which is you're normalizing it on one side of the spectrum in a way that's going to, at the other more extreme manifestation, result in violence, murder, assault, right? So yeah. you laugh it off, yeah. and, and when you do that, you're putting into play and normalizing these other types of behavior that you would say – are reprehensible and that someone would say they don't participate in.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I'll take like a personal anecdote. You know, I'd remember uh, when I was, I was working in a restaurant, um, you know, back in oh God, this was like the late eighties or, or, and um, I love this place. I really did. And I, I love the people I worked with. And the kitchen was a, you know, a bunch of guys um, I'm from the you know Northeast. So these are a bunch of guys from the kind of New York metropolitan area. And, I love that kind of the sensitive humor, the um, foul language, the, all, a lot of the kind of frankness that we associate with somebody like Anthony Bourdain, right? Um, like that kind of kitchen culture is like really, there are elements of that that I really loved. But I remember one day walking in and the guys had all been out to a strip club and they showed me pictures of themselves with the, the stripper. And I felt like I was being tested, you know, and I was a college student and taking my radical feminist classes, you know, and, and I just you know, called them out on it. But like when I called them out on it, I remember just feeling, um, you know, kind of like like blushing with a kind of shame yeah. and anger. Yeah. Um, and I felt like I was the killjoy. I was ruining their fun. You know, I just felt like I was doing something that was gonna make working there less fun, right? By doing that. And, you know, I will say too, th- these are people that I've grown to be friends with over the years and we talk about this time now. You know like um the last time i saw one of these chefs you know he was saying like i look back on that and i you know it's just like today employees will not put up with that and you can't do that and it's really changed the culture of the workplace and that's a good thing and it and you know and he observed that came with all kinds of other things about you know your willingness to put up with certain kinds of hours or low pay and you know and from his perspective a culture shift around sexual harassment was bound up with a better labor practice as well. And it is. And it is. And it
1: it always is. Yeah. It always is. And so the dehumanization process, the hierarchies of labor are always going to be bound up with these gendered and racialized systems. I want to ask you something that, that really like I, I feel annoyed about, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Like maybe there's a pushback to this, but I don't, think that this is particularly bad in sport. I feel like sport is a place for aspirations. It's very public. People identify really strongly with players in a way that they probably don't with the CFO of um, Netflix. But at at the end of the day, for me, I, I don't feel like there's a particular problem with sexual assault and sexual harassment in sport that I don't see in the university, for example. I don't know. When When I say that, yeah. are
2: you like, that's yeah. bullshit, Brenda? Or? No, I, I'm i totally, I'm so glad you said that. It gets me thinking, because it's like, there are things that are different about sports, and it's the radical gender segregation of sports structures, right? It's not the presence of se- sexual abuse, yeah. right? It's this yeah. this um, manufacturing of a universe, It's because th- it's also not just like radical gender segregation. It's the creation of segregated spaces for women's sports that are governed and controlled by men who are furthermore Sexist, and I would even say like misogynist. Meaning to go from just being like kind of soft biased to actually on some level really hating, <laughs> hating women yes. and LGBTQ people. They're attracted
1: to that segregated space. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about that that they like. Yeah. And and I I think when you're talking about being ashamed of ruffling feathers, you know, at your workplace, e- even the men who have these sorts of experiences, I think also feel
2: similarly that they're, you know, ruining the fun. I mean, the restaurant business was, I mean, that's one where sexual harassment is endemic, has been endemic. And there was a study that um, conducted about service workers during the pandemic that found that it was like a really high percentage of service workers have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace and that women experienced like a next level of harassment around masks, you know, where customers would be, hey, let me see that face. Let me see that smile. Right. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Let I me see that. how pretty you are. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So I can tip you correctly. You know what I mean? Like, it's like mm-hmm. this kind of thing is so woven into an expectation of what a server will do. And I, you know, my experience is that it's particularly bad when you were waiting on rich white men. Um, that is like really, really intense. And then some of my coworkers who are men, also were harassed in the workplace by men. Um, you know, in complex, kind of quasi-closeted 1980s corporate culture dynamics where, you know, they, it was like they were hiring a gay chef to be their pet in their home, you know, who they may sexually harass behind the back of their wife. Like, that's an actual story I witnessed with my own eyes. You know, so feminist anthropologist, Mary Douglas, who- um, I love Mary yes. Douglas. Since yes. purity
1: and Danger, I love Mary Douglas. yes.
2: This is in that zone, right? Like that, it's that sex um, and sexual relationships, um, intimacy practices, they're part of every organizational structure. And in those places where there's a disavowal of that fact, so like in academia, right? Like, of course, there's no relationships between teachers and students. um, And we as colleagues are having an affair with each other, but that has nothing to do with our work or, you know.
1: I hate to laugh, but it's it's and oh, it's like yeah, there
2: are all these things that happen around our work. And we this go to go back to sports, it's like all those years where there would be like no acknowledgement of the personal lives of lesbian players. So it was like never a gesture towards who is in a long-term relationship, um, you know, who is having kids with their partner, who's not having children, like all the stories would be about like straight players who are getting married and having kids, and then you would get an access to their family. Maybe you might see like a gay players like parents somewhere, but you wouldn't have an acknowledgement of the sexuality of those players because the whole like kind of sporting environment, including sports media would seize up with anxiety at the prospect of acknowledging that there are a lot of gay players in women's soccer or women's sports in general. Cause of course this is true for um, basketball as well. And, you know, that's where you see that there is a sexual culture, right? It's not the same thing as being like um, a service worker within a highly sexualized industry. Sex workers, body workers are often kind of in those kinds of spaces, right? These are not forms of labor that are defined by, by sexual relations, right? But sexual relations structure the social culture of the workplace and people are variously vulnerable depending on where they sit within those cultures. Um, And sexual harassment and abuse becomes, it's like, it kind of nests within those sorts of structures. I feel like I'm kind of speaking very abstractly, but, you know, in in academia, this has been an issue as like senior male faculty, I'll take the paradigmatic case, right, um, groom and sexualize their mentoring relationship with their advisees. So they'll be engaged in grooming practices with their advisees that isolate them from other advising structures, make them totally dependent on that person, and then turn that relationship into a highly sentimentalized romantic space, which may be sexual or not, right? But it becomes a kind of love relation that's masquerading as a work relation only. Then it's like, you don't even know how to talk about it because there's been this, it's like this whole Um, emperor with no clothes sort of situation where everybody is seeing what's going on, but the day-to-day operations are dependent upon no one actually saying out loud what they're seeing.
1: Which is a a really good mirror of Paul Riley and coaching. It's a very similar dynamic and it goes on for years and it doesn't unfold in one dramatic event. Yeah. But instead, is a repeated boundary crossing. It's yeah. it's very difficult and it's very high stakes for workers. And in this case, this is part of the problem, I think, too. Much like graduate students, much like um, servers at, at, in the kitchens, you know, um, or bussers or or whatever, they are trying, obviously to create a, a professional space for themselves. And there's very high stakes for coming out um, with it or, or even in, and, and it's very difficult to even recognize it. I mean, that's one of the painful things of listening to these women discuss yeah. their experiences is it's yeah. very hard. I mean, what you want to believe about yourself and how a mentor can shape you is no joke.
2: I remember in grad school trying to talk with some of my male, Um, friends who were also in grad school about like my own experiences as an undergraduate and how like every now and again you would it's like a professor might like give you extra special attention in class and you would think it might be because you'd done the homework and you were like smart and then there'd be this moment when you would realize it was something else and then you'd be like kind of frozen and I found myself often kind of frozen by that situation. And I had that kind of dynamic in a light way. It wasn't like a personal thing where the guy was like trying to seduce me or something like that. It was the way he behaved to me in the classroom itself. I could look back at it now and I would say like I had a need to feel special, right? I mean, as as do most of us, right? (laughs) On some level, right? You wanna believe you're special. And in a place where you're performing knowledge, right? Or skills. Where your whole life might be organized around the development of that skill set, when somebody in a position of power in that system acknowledges your specialness and your talent, that's like a really personal experience. And it's very confusing when somebody sexualizes that, um, turns that into even turning that into a personal friendship, right is it takes a high degree of trust and willingness on the part of the person in the supervisory position. To name what's going on and to say, you know, like we're moving in our conversations and in our coaching and mentoring relationship into a space that feels personal. And I want to acknowledge that that's happening in order to start to re articulate the boundaries between us, right? Like I can be a mentoring friend to you, but being a mentoring friend will mean, you know, that I don't, for example, share with you my own personal struggles, right? And ask you to take care of me. Right. It's really hard to have that level of intention and clarity um, in your advising relations. I mean, those of us who teach, oh yeah. You know, especially grad students, because you work with residents over such a long period of time and you work with their work so closely, professional ethics really mandates that you take responsibility for the direction of that relationship and that you steer it actively. Yeah. What you see with Riley is that he's, you know, I can't speak to his psychology right? But he's steering his relationships with specific players into a very personal direction and manipulating them around their own need. And in soccer, right, at that level, it's also, it's like a need to feel special, but that's also about your survival as a player, because that's about whether or not you're going to have a place on the team.
1: Yeah. And so I do think, once again, it's important to think about them as workers and as professionals. um, I mean, it's hard because In a capitalist system, too, I don't always want to think about my students as my clients. You know, that's disgusting to me in some way. But in another way, um, the very idea that we somehow have this like idyllic, privileged, apart from relationship that's so special and, you know, whole and pure and like an athlete and a coach um, is more problematic in some sense to me. than than trying to look at it as a workplace relationship. This is what I get paid to do.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, this is the place where, um, so one of my great passions as a scholar is Marxist feminist writing. And this is really the heart of what Marxist feminists think about, right? Is like, what is the space of, for example, like um, reproductive labor, gendered, highly gendered forms of labor, which within capital get marked as, paid less, but also as something for which you should not be paid at all. Right. Right. So the stigmatization of sex work who thought we'd be talking about this in the the sports context, but the stigmatization of sex work is dependent upon the sense that sex itself cannot be a form of labor for which a person is remunerated. And that is actually like the bedrock for the sexual exploitation of people within the workplace. Yeah. Right. Is that you're, um, in essence, extracting a form of affective labor from your subordinates. It's as if that is happening in some other space, right? As if you can set aside the whole labor relation um, when it switches into a sexual gear, right? And that's yeah. a place where we can feel, you know, like at the root of capital are all these different forms of con- contradiction that go mobilized against us. And the relationship between sex and work is one of those big, giant kinds of contradictions. Um, And that's why, so for example, in what's happening in NWSL, I would say, that's one of the reasons we're seeing so much being unlocked around that is because players are organizing, right? And they're seeing this as a labor issue. And that's the thing, that's like the big intervention and a really productive
1: one. I think it's a really productive one. And I think it speaks to the need for unionization. You know, that's always been kind of my first answer for (laughs) what do you, how do you fix women's soccer? When there are just general questions, but also recognizing, okay, that that bedrock of capital also comes with the link, and we don't see this link being made in the media, and I find it really frustrating between this scourge of uh, sexual harassment and assault and misogyny in women's soccer and what we find in men's soccer. and yeah. um, so that part of the promise for these male stars is to be able to access that labor that they don't consider labor right to be able to access women's bodies to be able to access um, more vulnerable men's bodies at will that that's part of their success that's part of the promise of them becoming um the top of their field
2: yeah and I'll, i'll go back to that workplace story of like coming to work and having my coworkers show me pictures of themselves at a strip bar and that moment of being tested in relation to that obviously men in um, in patriarchal structures, like men's football, that's like, I'm assuming that's just basically like par for the course in terms of your day-to-day life, right, is that locker room culture, but also just like um, the homosocial spaces, meaning like single-sex spaces where people are kind of bonding with each other, um, that part of the rituals of those bondings, like in one blog, like rant I wrote years ago, I described it as like the sexist handshake, it's like slaps on the back and jokes that you make to each other that are identifying each other as participants in a very specific kind of sexual culture. And, you know, where you're um, positioning yourself, as you were saying, like the desired result is one in which you are part of a group that has access to the bodies of subordinates. So those, you know, those are women, those are women fans. um, And then also in a different way, like more junior men, men within that circle, you know, and that's what hazing is, right? Like there's a lot, a lot of what we describe as hazing are very sexualized forms of humiliation. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the Mary Douglas anthropology thing, right? Like that these are rituals through which people are solidifying their relation, their membership in a group by engaging ritually in the stigmatization of sex, right? As um, impure, right? Or um, as abject.
1: And who wants to identify with the humiliated and the degraded? Yeah. So then yeah. when we get these stories about why does no one care? Why don't people just, you know, yeah. get up in arms? It's in part, I think, because of that. And women, of course, participate in this and, and, and girls because yeah. we're all part of this same system. But there, it's very difficult to get someone to identify with victims and survivors because we are taught through stories and um, culture and in every way, right? So even, of course, there's the like financial risk and the professional risk and the very real risk of, of being a victim of violence just by opposing the system. But there's also this other thing that works on people, which is we aren't really taught to have sympathy with sex workers or the degraded or the humiliated you know, it's scary. We want to
2: identify with winners. And then what's contradictory about that is that, you know, so let's take, you know, the kind of paradigmatic, like high school hazing incident, right? Is that the expectation is that everybody on the team is going through whatever that humiliating ritual is, Um, you know, and guys have been sodomized (laughs) as, you know, a um, a part of that. And um, there've been legal cases around that, establishing that as a form of sexual abuse and harassment. So like, it's like, you have this kind of, of stigmatization, a kind of cultural practice, whereby identification with a victim is like, it's like unsustainable. Um, And yet, like people are carrying shame and humiliation inside them. Um, And, you know, one of the most disturbing experiences I've ever had as a sports studies scholar was I was on a panel at the American Studies Association. I think it was a panel where we were talking about sports, or maybe we were talking about Penn State, because I know I was talking about Penn State and Sandusky and Paterno. Yeah. yeah. And um, and there was a person on that panel who was a um a football, like a you know, Pennsylvania football fan, really deeply attached to that. And his response to me was like he was violated by what I had said. I mean, he was really upset. And it was like, I've never, you know, I've gotten into arguments with people, but I think I've never said, I've never been in the experience where I said something in a panel. That was so wounding to someone that their response to me was really uh, pretty vile. Um, and what he was responding to, you know, was that I was saying that what goes by rough and tumble play within locker room spaces can be highly policing and can be structured by really deep forms of misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. you know, and that until we confronted and worked through those elements, right of sports cultures, we weren't going to be in a place where we could really talk about. The place of uh, sex and power right within, and we, you know, these structures would just keep reproducing violence, you know? And then he just was like, these locker room rituals are necessary to football. Like football doesn't exist without it. And then I remember sitting there and just thinking he's been through it. He's been through it. Right. I mean, of course he has. Right. And, and I'm asking him casually to confront that, what you know, that the possibility that what he was through was violating, yeah, and actually was part of cementing violation into the culture of power within the, that sport. I, you know, I just was, I think because I'm mainly kind of in the space of just like LGBTQ studies and then like women's sports, I had underestimated how personal this is for people and how hard it is to actually confront.
1: And how wrapped up it is when we say it's foundational to society and transnationally so <laughs> it's I mean, you're confronting something that's so big, that's so deeply ingrained, that's so wrapped up in racism, that's so yeah. wrapped up in, in in inequalities of all kinds that it does get overwhelming for people and they yeah. get exhausted. Yeah. You know, listening listening to this interview, if that's what it is, or conversation isn't going to be something that people are like, oh, wow, this is fun. I want to do that again. (laughs) It's, it's not fun. Um, you know, it's not, you're not going to, you know, and we're not going to become millionaires with feminist killjoy behavior. Yeah. But,
2: you know, like as somebody who started off working in queer studies, queer performance, queer visual culture, you know, like my life world used to be things like clubs, right. Um, I mean, it still is just, you know, but in terms of as a scholar, I was thinking about spaces are really defined by pleasure and pleasure that was furthermore hard to, like, produce, sustain, cultivate and nurture within mainstream spaces, you know, and so you had to create like, um, you know, today, I guess we would say a safer space, right, within which people could be who they are and actually celebrate and love each other, right. So these kinds of spaces happen all the time, right. Um, And it's like when we're focused on you know, say like the apparatus of FIFA and the world cup and that whole system or the international Olympic committee. One of the effects of that system is to constantly make us feel that sense of scale and feel overwhelmed and powerless before. it. Yes. Yes. And, and it's really important to hold on to our faith and our joy. And to like push back against that, you know, and, you know, that kind of pushback happens in all kinds of ways. The most traditional thing that we can point to are kind of grassroots and um, community-based um, football practices and fan- like um, independent supporters groups. I'm a part yeah. of Rebellion 99, which is an independent supporters group in LA for a um, Angel City, um, although they predate the formation of Angel City. And I'd say their principles are very, very, very much about that. Right, Um, you know they're oppositional, and it's like when somebody needs to do something for Angel City, so many people step up because it's a participatory um, practice. Being a fan, right, in this way, yeah, you know. So I'm going to say, like, as an Angel City fan, or not, I'm hard to use the word fan, but I'm a member of the supporters group. I mean, I I think like we're looking with some side eye at the institution, the emerging institution that is the club. And trying to push back and make sure our voices are being heard as we see things that are making us feel a little queasy, like the mobilization of feminism as a brand identity. Mm-hmm. And then this big question about, well, is that just a brand identity? You know? And um, I think a lot of us feel vulnerable around that, but we also feel like we could take it or leave it, you know, um, because football is something so much bigger for us than a team, right? So. Anyway, I'm kind of um, spinning out because I, you know, Angel City, it's, that's a whole other kind of <laughs> fantasy dream problem. So. Well,
1: and we can always wax poetic on how, you know, being anti-racist and, you know, being inclusive and feminist is you, you by necessity, are optimistic. You You yeah. actually wouldn't get up and do this every day if you didn't think that things could be different. Yeah.
0: Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: I do want... To talk about the article that we wrote recently that never was. <laughs> and I think it's important because I think for a lot of sports people um, that are dealing with this or listeners, they will, it, it reveals a lot about the structures of power when it comes to these discussions, which is that um, Jen and I were approached by The Guardian, um, by a very well intentioned uh, editor <laughs> who shall not be named um, it, because it could be anybody and it could be any publication, to write a kind of revisitation of a Vice article we wrote on the rape uh, case of Cristiano Ronaldo and the new cases in regards to um, Benjamin Mendy. And so what we had argued was that to understand these cases and why they keep happening, one needs to look at corruption. And the issue of corruption in sport, but not just sport, but using sport to think about how corrupt institutions are the bedrock of some of this violence. And if you don't tackle the issue of corruption, and if you can't talk about it and understand it in a holistic and smart way, then you're not going to be able to solve these problems. So... We were approached um, and (laughs) we tried in the article to write and rewrite this to get it through. And it was too radical for them. Um, I mean, these are, we're two professors. Like we just, we're, we're not powerful. Why is it that this was so you think troubling? Yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, there's a concrete challenge of libel law in England so it's like easier to get sued successfully for libel in the u k. than it is in the United States. Um, And so one thing that they were being very anxious about was uh, the language that we were using regarding the accusations against Ronaldo and um what happened with the case. and so far. Uh, the Las Vegas attorneys, like they decided not to pursue charges. and like, how do we narrate this in a way where we talk about? the case itself, the documents that were in the football league's files, because uh, he paid out, um, I can't remember, it was a figure like several hundred thousand dollars. Um, he paid out uh, money, he gave her money to like buy her, buy her silence. And so as a part of that, there's this interview in which it's a document that appears to be Cristiano Ronaldo admitting to having non-consensual sex with her. <laughs> and um we used language that was modeled after existing reporting. We are really careful to do that. And, you know, it was still never published. And, you know, so I think that's part of it. I think that's like a hesitation around that. But then I think, and this goes more to where we started with the kind of scandal economy. Mm -hmm. It's like to really write well about these issues, you have to write carefully and it takes a few days. And so it's like, you can't really do a hot take on a, on a rape accusation and like really contribute to moving the ball forward (laughs) in our conversations about rape accusations. Yeah. And so, and it's like the move that you need to do is to like, to de-exceptionalize the story. But when you do that, right, when you say this is not an exceptional case, this is a typical one, it becomes less newsworthy. Yeah. Right. It becomes more of like, not a story. And this has been the problem in reporting on sexual violence in general and in sports in particular, because, you know, the cases of sexual abuse of women players in sports, of the sexual molestation of boys and young men in sports, these cases are not new. And the fact that they existed is not new knowledge. But especially in women's sports, there's been a sense of those cases as not being newsworthy because Who cares about women footballers in South Africa in 2010 when the head coach of the women's team is fired months after the conclusion of the the men's World Cup, where it seems very clear, at least to me as somebody like as a fan and as somebody who's tracking that World Cup very closely, that the South African Football Association made that choice to not actually take that man out of that coaching position until after the World Cup was over because it's bad publicity. And like that case is reported in South African news, but never taken up by international news media as indicative of a very, very, very big problem in the administration of national programs globally. And the reason I had a couple conversations with sports editors at the time, and they would be like, well, where's the story, right? It's actually like so hard to wrap their heads around the fact that this was newsworthy because women's sports isn't that, you know, it's like, there's only a couple types of stories you were allowed to tell about women's sports. And most of them were about how it's getting better. Uh, there are audiences for women's sports. Amazing. You know, you want to talk about something that's not news. You know, that's not news. <laughs> <right>? <laughs>
1: you know, there's so much that's not news. Yeah. Um, that ends up in sports pages. So much about this, I feel, is access. Y- you know, ugh, it's it's hard because I'm going to, it sounds like I'm being so critical of journalists uh but it's a true story you need access to these teams you need access to these coaches you need access to man city's players and if you're going to come out and say look you know there were three charges that were serious enough that he was put on house arrest basically yeah. at certain points benjamin mendy i'm talking about and the he's also a french national player And it was serious enough, nothing got in the news, none of it, until the fourth time um, that it came up, right? Um, And you just, you have to question to what extent are publications worried about their access to these very, very powerful institutions? And the editor, I'll just come back to this very kind, um, well-meaning editor, I'm sure, uh, was shocked because he doesn't deal with sports. And he was just, just like seemed absolutely befuddled. Like, how is it I'm getting these stops? How is it I can get an article through on Brexit and its racial implications and I can't get an op-ed through about Man City and Juventus? And, you know, we just tried to tell him that's what the whole fucking thing is about. Yeah. Yeah. You can't get it through because you don't know how powerful and corrupt these institutions are, evidently.
2: Yeah. And our (laughs) our piece actually got, um, I don't want to, because it wasn't like spiked. It wasn't like there was a moment where they said, we're not going to publish this. It was like, he kept kind of. Like, I'm committed to get this through. We can do it. Yes. (laughs) And then it just stopped. But it was the same timing as a, a fantastic interview with Judith Butler about um, transphobia and the gender, I'm going to put this in giant scare quotes, gender critical movement. Um, This is a very powerful, like transphobic formation in feminist um, spaces and in feminist studies. And Butler, who uh, is one of the most important voices in gender studies since the authorship of Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter, a, a later book, really important thinker, gave this amazing interview about that. And then there was a section where Butler uh, talked about the relationship between gender critical movement, um, anti-trans movement, and the far right. And they actually censored that paragraph. And it was around libel anxieties because she had referenced some things that were happening here in Los Angeles um, around a super complex and um, messy story about uh, trans Person who is using um, Korean Day Spa that's very popular here, and then this became like a flashpoint of far right um, harassment of the business. You know, making it seem like somehow this person was like posing this existential danger to cis girls and women who are using the space. And the same week, you know, Butler had referenced that, and they they took that paragraph out, and they did it in a way that was really um, cruel and upsetting because it really did seem like they were bending to um, transphobic TERF, uh, meaning trans-exclusionary radical feminists, um, so but it's basically anti-trans feminists. Um, they were making accommodations to that wing rhetorically, and doing that just by suppressing uh, an important moment in the interview where she was linking um anti-trans stances and an ideology to fascism. <sighs> You know, and so it's that turn to very big thinking and really important, necessary thinking that can be the thing that makes something weirdly not sustainable within a news space. You know, Uh, that's kind of should give one pause.
1: It should give one pause. And especially now that they look to academics for free labor to do op eds, (laughs) to do this kind of stuff, it's like it's a really hard balance because I do feel as though in our academic work, we're, we actually have a lot more freedom uh, to say some things not always, but you look at academics moving into these spaces and it really can feel like it's changing work yeah you know it's it's changing the way in which people are at least their work is being presented yeah you know Judith Butler wrote what she wrote, but a lot of people who don't read her academic work will now not have that paragraph.
2: Yeah. It's interesting when you think about this with women's sports, about how challenging reporting on women's sports is to traditional news structures, right? How how much it has challenged the sense of what constitutes news and what constitutes a newsworthy story. You know, when you look at how much ink is spilled, how much media real estate is given to transfer rumors, which is a little more than how the rumors about how people are feeling. Right Like it's like eighty percent of that uh, discourse is like how what what people think they might know about how players are thinking and feeling, or how management is thinking and feeling. like that's a huge space, right, of football media at certain times of the year. And you know, it's like the day in day out reporting on the women's game, you know, it's much better than it used to be. I'm extremely grateful for that, but it could there could be so much more, right? And so much kind of
1: constructive storytelling that would really attach people to the sport and to the players.
2: Yeah. To bring this back to, to like the mobilization of sexualized humiliation and violation, right? That this is like not specific to sports, not specific to women's sports, right? But what is specific to women's sports are the very particular ways in which um, it's vulnerable structurally to other kinds of systemic things like the dismantling of all forms of journalism, you know, it's like, (laughs) as we wish for more coverage, I, Brenda and I both know all too well, right? Like how, um, you know, there are very few people who are paid to report on soccer, whether it's men or women, right? Right. You know, right? and that's not just about so- bias against soccer. That's also about the dismantling of the entire um, labor ecology and money. Um, the economy right around uh, journalism and sports, sports journalism in particular um, is one of the last kinds of spaces where there is a kind of a, an existing kind of daily consumption of stories. But the infrastructure is nowhere where it used to be.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we talk and write about this, the answers from editors and listeners are, can you just tell me what needs to be done? Can you just please write, you know, how should a league handle these allegations? How should fans deal with this? Um, And I I really want to continue to resist giving those bullet points. I think we've laid out some things here that are really obvious. Um, If you listen to the conversation, I don't think there are those things. I I don't think when we're talking about the bedrock <laughs> foundational part that we can just bullet it. It's not that we don't have constructive ideas. If we have to kind of distill it, certainly we've already talked about unionization, we've already talked about ways in which you destigmatize sex work, the ways in which you think about corruption and accountability and going after, you know, some of this. Slush money has an an abuse of power, has everything to do with vulnerable people within sport, you know, but there's no like there's no magic bullet.
2: Yeah, there's not like a single fix. That said, you know, we can think about how, you know, so let's take the story um, around Riley as an example, that with serious investigative reporting around allegations of abuse, landing within a context in which you have a movement of players unionizing. Organizing, um, and then also landing within the context of a league that's been going from one crisis to another. Right, that we have a moment in women's football where things are unsettled enough to actually. I this is the me being very optimistic, you know, that there is room for transformational change. If it's not player centered, it's going nowhere, right? And then furthermore, if victims are not brought in. To the process, then none of the things that the League does in response to these allegations will be meaningful, right? So right. Jennifer Freyd, F-R-E-Y-D, um, she and her team, she's part of a, a team of scholars um, in Oregon, they write about institutional betrayal, and then they also work with institutions to cultivate uh, what they call institutional courage, and i sorry I sound like a consultant when I'm using this language, but it's about like um organizations in which there have been um violations of trust like taking responsibility for that and making themselves vulnerable in relationship to the people who have been hurt right and to say like we have to listen and we have to like be accountable and it's not on it's not only on us to determine what that form of accountability looks like right yes. and it's extremely difficult for commercial organizations pro sports organizations to take that posture, right? To let go of some of the control of the narrative. And I do think when they, when organizations do that, they do actually shift the institutional culture and that it is possible in a place where the fan base, for example, the consumers of women's football, like many of us identify ourselves as feminists, right? Like this is a place where doing the right thing here is very much should be on brand.
1: (laughs) Well, before we um, derail into cynicism again, I want to leave on that positive note. Um, I dug deep for that. (laughs) You did. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. That's as rose-colored glasses as as Professor Jennifer Doyle and I get. So um, I want to thank you for having this conversation and, you know, just tell you how much we appreciate you at Burn It All Down. Thank you. Thank you.